Okay, well, welcome back. We'll finish up this chapter today. And uh, I think where we left it off last time was on page 82. Does that sound right to you guys? Yep, I have a little marker on there. Looks like that's where Was it at the top or like halfway down? <laughs> I don't really remember. I don't even remember. That's okay. That's okay, but kind of where we left it off was, if I'm remembering correctly, the they were starting to talk about the idea of sleep. Uh, the, that was introduced. Death is like a sleep. So why don't we, why don't we pick it up? Um, there's the verse, John 11, 11 to 14. Lolly, you want to read that for us? Sure. These things he said, and after that he said to them. Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Hmm. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So what I think is really interesting about that verse is Jesus kind of exposed a different... Uh, you know, what, what God calls death and what people call death are two different things. You know, and Jesus kind of brings it out in that verse. We we call death, you're dead. Mm -hmm. Jesus and God doesn't call death, death. They call it sleep. Mm -hmm. Which implies something totally different. Um, so the author says here in Ecclesiastes 9.5, he kind of gives a little bit more clarification what they mean by death is not death but sleep for the living know that they will die but the dead know nothing and then the bottom of that page here's some interesting word studies when they were talking about some translation errors which I think is really interesting um, Angel can you read them like say maybe the bottom three paragraphs Top paragraph of page 83, that whole issue there. Uh, this one right here? Top of 83? Uh, sorry, bottom of 82. Kind of like where it says in the King James Psalms. Oh, here we go. Yeah, okay. kind of like that whole... In uh, King James Psalms, chapter 146, verse 4 says, His man's breath goeth forth, he returneth to the earth. And in that very day, it starts to perish. The reason the KJV is quoted here because most modern translation will use the word plans instead of thoughts, as the new King James Version does, which says his spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. This is an excellent sample of why word studies are important. The Hebrew word translated in the King James Version as thoughts and in the modern versions as plans is eshtona, which has only one definition, that is thoughts. Hmm. It is a mystery why the translators chose plans instead, as it can be misleading. So, what do you think of that? Is it a big deal, not a big deal? You know, we like to talk a lot about like the great controversy concept, like the bigger picture, how Satan is constantly working to misrepresent Christ, set himself up in our minds to worship him. So, I mean, even though translators could say, you know, 
and I'm not a hardcore King James, you know, translating pure, you know, person that needs to say like King James all the way, period. However, I do think it's interesting that even though the translators probably most certainly did their absolute best when they create these versions, how something like that plans versus thoughts, just a little tweak here. I mean, am I too far out of maybe the realm of reality to say that plans could suggest that people could still have thoughts, but they can't work them out because they can't make their plans happen? Or is it not, is it inconsequential? You know what I mean? Like when they say plans, I see as in uh, their future prospects. You know what I mean? Their, yeah. their plans, their future prospects. Um, that's what that par that perishes because they obviously can't do it, but it allows for thoughts to still be in it. I, I think it's kind of whoever translated maybe tried to make sense of death Interesting. in their own, yeah. you know, what they thought the meaning of like that the was, the bias yeah. of it. And so, you know, plans, okay, they really can't do anything future. They can't build that house they wanted, but maybe their thoughts were still there. Or, you there's know what I mean? There's a quadriplegic yeah. who's, who's mute mm -hmm. and deaf. There's people who are alive that are that way. They're a functioning brain, but no ability to do anything physically. Their plans have perished. But they can do a whole bunch of thinking. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know if I'm splitting hairs, but it's just... Well, it makes a difference. Kind of does, yeah. Oh, it makes a big difference. Yeah. I think also because of the modern modern times now. I mean, it's like... It's like, that, let's take the, the language, the Spanish language. You go to different countries and one word can mean something else in another country. But maybe the whoever translated that into thoughts maybe had a different... Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Maybe... I think it's really important, though, and here's the author kind of brings it out, continuing down on 83. If the dead know not anything, and the very day they die, their thoughts perish, that implies a state of mental unconsciousness. I think that's where it's important, the mental unconsciousness aspect. Um, you know, and he just kind of makes that whole point to sleep. I mean, last night I went to bed, and the next thing I knew, the alarm woke me up, and then I can't, I can't tell you how many nights I'm a deep sleeper. When I'm out, I'm freaking out. And I can't tell you how many times I wake up the next day and Boaz says, did you hear me come in the room last night? And mommy got up and helped me do something and whatever and this, that, and the other. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> we sleep good. So a whole bunch of stuff happened I had no knowledge of. Not, none, none whatsoever. I'm out. Yeah, Mark will have conversations with me. I said, that's not fair. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, it just so that's a really that's a really great way to kind of describe it. It could have been I don't know. That's did I sleep twelve hours? Or did I sleep two or one? Time everything stops, right? Um, the other part here, yeah, that's what he says. Whether this is in that same paragraph, whether one sleeps for one hour or ten, it's the same to them. In the same way, the sleep of death is only a temporary unconsciousness, while a person awaits the resurrection, when all shall awake and come from the grave and all that. 
Uh, here's a really fun, here's a really fun verse. Now, the, those of our other Christian friends who believe of the immortality of the soul and believe that you go directly to your final destination when you die, I wonder how they make sense of this verse in Acts. Acts 2.29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you, if the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and in his tomb with us to this day. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Right? I wonder... It's easy for us here to sit around and have this conversation, because we all kind of believe this anyway. Death is asleep, you'll get there. But how does that make sense to someone who... Or how would you describe this process to someone who takes comfort in the fact that their mom, grandma, grandpa, son, daughter is in heaven now? You know, they take comfort in that. Is it even necessary to correct them on that? How about that question? Personally, I do not. <clears throat> I, I personally do not unless asked. Mm. And... And if I've been asked, well, then I let them know what I believe. If they're going to go, or, or if it comes to the point where they're on and on and on about it, I think in the past I have said, well, you know, I don't, I don't believe necessarily that, but I don't put them down or nothing like yeah. that. It's more like, I just, I don't believe that. And then sometimes that opens up the opportunity to share because sometimes, well, what do you believe? Yeah. And then, because mm -hmm. I've had that happened multiple times as well yeah hmm i like here when they bring in this computer metaphor i remember last time we got together mark brought up the computer metaphor to kind of describe this process of death and i think it's so good um sleep or death being like a computer um you connect it to a power source it comes to life the screen lights up all kinds of information are fed into it and all the information that is saved in the computer is in its memory, right? So you can unplug, you know, see this here with this computer making, making our recordings for us. You know, I don't know. How many of you have old computers in your, from long time ago, you know? Yeah. We can plug them babies in and they'll, they'll pick up right off where we left them, you know? Um, I think that's just a really great metaphor for this. I think... David, uh, I think I think it was David Clendon's that mm -hmm. he actually brought up a really good argument <clears throat> that it you know it's like if if God is a God of love and, and and based on your belief you're in heaven that you can watch over your family how how destroyed you would be to see your family suffer in the real world, you know, they're still alive and God allow you to look at your family suffering. You know, mm -hmm. that would be so loving of a God, right? So basically God just puts you to sleep until you're ready to be called. Mm -hmm. right? Thank you for sharing that. Um, this first paragraph on page 84 he brings up something here that I think maybe we should a little bit more depth to. Um, he said, when we sleep the sleep of death, our bodies turn back to earth, but our spirit, the breath of life, returns to God. Our character or nature is stored in God's memory bank 
in an unconscious state until Jesus comes again and gives us a new body, reconnects us to the power source, and we come back to life. Um, but the, the part in there about where he says our character or nature is stored in God's memory bank in an unconscious state. I feel like it would have been really cool for him to add a little bit there to give some evidence behind that. Because, and there, and there is, and I think what, what should be connected there was, you know, we all talk about, it, it's really common to understand the idea of like your name is written in like the book of life, right? But in the Bible, what does name represent? Right? Name represents character. In the Bible, your name represents your character. And that's why when you look at Abram, Abraham, was his character was changed and he became Abram. Sarah was Sarah, then her character was changed to become Sarai. Jacob, Israel. Right? You can think of a bunch of these names. Saul persecuting Christians, his character was changed, he became Paul, right? So in the Bible, name represents character. So when you look at the verses where it talks about, you know, your name is written in the book of life, Ellen White also has a lot of re references to this as well, where she talks about, it's not, you know, Sarah Piper, Lola Hutchins, the angels say that, you know, it's not your name written there. It is your, it is your character that's written there. So there is a lot of biblical evidence to support what the author here is saying, that our our nature, our character is stored. You know, I like how, you know, Tim Jennings says it all the time on the heavenly cloud servers. <laughs> you know, where our natures are stored in the cloud, <laughs> you know. So that when, I, I think it's really interesting, you know. So it's not your deed that's, it's not your deeds that are recorded. It's your nature. It's the kind of person you are that's recorded. Does that make anybody feel better or worse? I guess it depends on your view of God, maybe. Because people who have like a legal view of God could have a really crummy nature, a really nasty character. But as long as, you know, like the once saved, always saved, the I'm saved, the Jesus covers my sin. Candy clear rotten apple theory. Well, and also it's it's in a sense, comforting because a person can be a certain nature and have a bad day. Right. But that bad day isn't going to be reflective of your nature. There you go. It's what you do with the bad day. Right. That determines your character. Well, right? even if yeah. you do, even if you mess up on that bad day, right. your your nature right. is right. something else. That's not what you would normally do. Right. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. That. Uh. I think Paul in Romans, he kind of wrestles with that too. He's like, man, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? And why do I want to do stuff and I can't do it. Like he's, he's just like, mm. like that's a very different character or nature than someone who's like, I don't care. Right. Whatever I want. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, one of my favorite verses. Any other thoughts from you guys on that page there as we kind of keep moving down through? I love 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. I think that's, man, that's a really awesome verse. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 
This is the second coming of Christ. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. I love that idea. Because that means I don't have to stay this way forever. <laughs> you know? What an amazing experience that we'll have one day. To think about how that's going to play out. Any other thoughts there? As you read down through? It's just, you know, that'll be something to see that all happen. Yeah? Sarah's got something to brew, I think. Your gears are turning. You're smoking. <laughs> Are your gears turning? What do you think? No. No? They're turning slowly. <laughs> so how do people who believe in the immortality of the soul interpret that verse? I've not actually asked anybody that question. If you're already in heaven, you're already immortal, then how can you put on immortality? How can you... It almost makes more questions than it does answers, huh? Um, over here on 85, he goes through kind of a quick definition of the difference between body, soul, and spirit um, from a biblical standpoint. Kind of helps us understand the terms more clearly. Uh, Lola, you want to read down through that a little bit? Sure. Uh, body refers only to the flesh and bones, the physical being of a man or animal. At death, it returns to earth, the soul refers to the physical body, including the breath of life. In other words, the entire living being. When the body dies, the soul, or the living being, no longer exists, because in the Bible, soul only refers to a living body. Spirit refers primarily to the life force, or breath of life itself. It returns to God at the death of a person. But it also refers to the nature or character of a person which upon death is preserved in an unconscious state until the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was last time we were together, Seth asked the question about, like, could a soul also be an animal? And we kind of brought up how in Hebrew, yeah, soul is just, just simply a living being. Mm -hmm. You know, so animals are souls too, because body plus breath equals soul. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, then he gets into the really cool discussion or debate man you get into this conversation with certain people about the placement of a comma in the new testament and you'll have a good conversation on your hands um where jesus told the thief on the cross today you'll be with me in paradise have you guys ever talked to anybody about that too about the placement of the comma or heard about that the what the uh today yeah oh yeah yeah, it's a, it's a big one, right? Yeah, I heard about it. And then he also gives another example in Acts 
so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and all the evils of the ghost went out. And he gives another example of, you know, there's no such thing as a sick handkerchief, so there should be a comma there. And, important point, there was no punctuation when the Bible was written, or chapters or verses. That would be actually a really fun, you know, for someone to write, say, a letter with no punctuation, and then let somebody else place the commas and periods, and then compare it to what the original what author the actual, intended, what he meant, what, and yeah. see if there was any like that. that. Right? That would be a really interesting exercise. So, to not spend a whole lot of time on that. Um, something that stood out to me, well then, and then I guess maybe an important, important point on page 86, he does bring out the fact that Jesus told Mary Magdalene, don't touch me yet, I didn't go to my father in heaven. And that happened Sunday morning, so obviously Jesus didn't go to heaven right away, that day, that he told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't go to heaven. So that's another point he kind of brought out. But you can interpret that as your decision today. I'll see you in paradise. Right. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, it was talking about present tense. Mm -hmm. He was saying, I'm telling you today that you will be in paradise. Right. Right. The fun fact here, too. Um, the. The bottom of 86 into 87, there's some good stuff that, that he brings out. I think we should check this out. Um, bottom paragraph 87, finally there's the verse that is so often quoted with this subject comes up. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The problem is this verse is misquoted. Look closely as it's written. And this is found in 2 Corinthians 5.8. This is Paul saying, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So he's kind of making this point that says when a person dies to them, it would seem only a second until they were with Jesus. He's not saying that when a person dies, they immediately go to heaven, contradicting all the other things the Bible says about death. And then this is, I'm reading from the first paragraph on 87. The last sentence, quote, the Bible says, I'm sorry, remember don't say, quote, the Bible says, until you've looked at everything the Bible says. I underline that sentence, and then I have a question because I have a problem with it. What if you're not a theologian or a Bible scholar or have the time to look at everything the Bible says? What do you do with that then? Right? How do, you, how do we make sense of that idea that's like, Don't say the Bible says until you've looked at everything the Bible says. I haven't looked at everything the Bible says. You, most of us in this room have been Adventists since we were born, right? In the Christian church. have. I mean, I've not read the Bible cover to cover. And even if you did read it cover to cover, you can't remember it all. Mm -hmm. It takes years. It years. It's a life. It takes study. Yeah. Dude. Constant. So then should we not say, well, the Bible says Jesus died for your sins if you didn't read the whole cover? 
So what's what's being stirred up for you? Like, what, what do we do in that situation, right? Does it seem like it's unfair to say, or is there something maybe a little bit deeper there? What do we do with that? It's almost like a, not a warning. That's another word. But kind of saying that, you know, until you've, your understanding is thorough, that what you can say can be basically just, you're not going to be able to defend it. Hmm. You know, because you're going to say this, and someone who's more studied than you is going to say, but what about this? And then you're going to be sitting there with your mouth open because you're like, what? Hey, I thought this and this was enough, but clearly it wasn't because you didn't read the other passages that either support or are against or is different, right. you know? Right. <clears throat> I think that means that it shouldn't be you can't just look at one verse and that's how you determine what something means like if you have I don't think you necessarily have to read the whole Bible but if you have multiple verses at least that you can kind of use to make your point or, or support your understanding and that's different than just taking a single verse and saying, well, this is what it means. If you have three or four verses and they all point to something that seems very similar and very reasonable, then I think you can be pretty confident in saying, like, I think this is actually what it means versus just like, okay, there's three words here. This is absolutely what he's saying and what it, what we should you know, take it that way. Like that. That's dangerous. I like that. And, and I can remember, and I agree with that because... I can remember, you know, people would often quote a certain verse for this or that reason, and then they didn't read the whole paragraph. So you're not getting the entire story. You're getting one line of the thing, and you're, you're assuming, and it is an assumption, that that's what that means. If you have not read all of that, if you've not put that all together... For me, I think what's important is the Bible says, as I currently understand it, <laughs> right? I think that's a, because, because to your point, well, as someone, until you have a full understanding of everything, but like God is infinite and God is the source of truth, which means there's an infinite amount of, there's an infinite gap between, you know, my current understanding and understanding it fully, Right. It's an infinite gap. Like, just like, I forget who it was that said that, you know, if you spend your whole life studying the Bible and every time you go through it, man, something. I've read that verse 500 times and a new insight just clicked, right? Yeah. So I think I think what's important there is say the Bible says because I read the Bible and as I understand what the Bible says, here's what, right? Mm -hmm. But it's important though, back to our point earlier, what's your nature? What's your character? Are you... Are you proud and going to die on this hill? Or do you have an attitude or, or character nature that's that's willing to consider, you know, and like grow and, and look into it and be challenged and all of that? You know what I mean? 
And also, also too, you know, just to have this principle that's like, okay, so if somebody says, here's it is, here's it is, and here's what the Bible says, so here's what it is. It's like, okay, if that were true, what kind of God would that be? What does it say about God? What kind of person is that, you know? Because the Bible says God is love, which means if we read a verse or we interpret anything that makes God look anything other than loving, then our, our understanding needs to shift. Because God is love, right? See, I, I have a, a fundamental problem with that, that concept simply because as humans, our idea of loving is not the same as God's idea of loving. Mm -hmm. So what we see, you know, what, what Bo sees as me being a loving parent is very different than the reality of what it really means to be a loving parent. So, I think when, when if we look at it through, you know, a sinful nature, which we all have, and we're like, oh, well, that doesn't seem loving, like, that could really be skewing what actually is loving versus what our perception of loving is. Right. So, I think, you know what I mean? Like, I think we might be throwing some things out to only use that as the... You know what I mean? Like, for what is actually part of God's character and what's not, to some degree. So do we have a revelation, though, of what God is love actually looks like? So my, my argument is not that, like, we shouldn't have that, like, okay, like, does this make God look good? My thing is, you have to be a little bit, I think you have to go the next step and say, so as people, like, look at your idea of what loving looks like, because, like, that's important when it comes to really deciding what real loving looks like and what your skewed idea of being loving looks like. So when you, when you take, when you... When you do that, when you say, okay, so let me look at my idea of what loving looks like and apply it to a person, like who do you compare it to? Who do you pair it against, right? Is angel loving, right? Who do we compare angel with as people to gauge whether he's loving or not? Like, where's the standard, right? And then the next point would be if you take that same approach and you say, is God loving or how you're understanding him to be loving, right? What are you comparing him with? Like, Where's the standard that you're measuring him against? And that's the thing, regardless of whether you like it or not, we're all products of our just life, right? So like hmm? my, my thought around what loving is, is based off of my life cumulative experiences, right? Like how I was raised, like how I saw authority figures, right? Like, or how they were presented to me when I was a child and how that affected me and all this kind of stuff. So like, and we can know cognitively like, oh, well, like this is how God shows himself and this is, you know, what we should be comparing it to. But like my life experience is very different. Right. right. Like it, it's going to factor in. So what 
I actually end up responding to is going to be very different maybe than what I should be looking at as sure. the comparison to what is loving. Sure. So I just think you have to be careful about saying like, okay, well, like if you don't see this as loving, then it can't be God's character. I think that's a very, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I dangerous that. way to say that yeah. to a certain extent. And I think the, the standard that you filter all of that through maybe would be maybe the lens you filter through is Jesus because God so loved the world he gave his only son Jesus was the word made flesh Hebrews says he was the exact image and representation of his character and nature and all of that right so to understand for me I can hear what you're saying for me if I'm reading something in the Bible and I'm struggling to make sense of it well how did Jesus deal with a similar situation in his ministry? How did he accept people? How did he discipline people? How did he respond to betrayal and hatred? How did he speak of, you know, like all these things? Like, to me, that's where you find that, that evidence of what does God as love look like? It looks like Jesus. To me, that's what that is. I'm not disagreeing with that. Any other thoughts on that? Lola's gears are turning too. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're smoking. Smoking. <laughs> are we on fire? Oh, Thank, fire? Thanks for that, Sarah. That's, I, I appreciate that. It's good to press into some of these things. Um, check out the bottom of page 87. This is really good. Um, I'll just kind of read into it with the lie. Satan started this lie that you won't surely die in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. That was the first teaching of the immortality of the soul. To Eve, you won't surely die. And then if you go down to this lie has been Christianized in the church during the Dark Ages, and then this is out of, um, it's a quote under the heading of Greek philosophy in Funk and Wagnall's Encyclopedia, Reader's Digest, published 1958. Check this out. The philosophical concepts developed by the Greeks, particularly during the flowering of Greek civilization between the years 600 and 200 BC, lie at the root of all later philosophical speculation in the Western world. The intuitive hypothesis of the ancient Greeks foreshadowed many of the theories of modern science, and many of the moral ideas of pagan Greek philosophers have been incorporated into the body of Christian moral doctrine. What do you think of that? And he points it out. One of the moral ideas of pagan Greek philosophers that was incorporated into Christian moral doctrine was the immortality of the soul. as taught by a lot of famous Greek philosophers. It goes way back. Way back to the beginning. So what does it matter though, right? To your point, we talked a little bit earlier. Uh, if you're talking to someone who believes their grandma's in heaven or their kids in heaven or whatever it is, like you say something to them, like it's the big deal as long as they, right? Now, let me clarify. I don't believe that it's a salvation issue, mm -hmm. right? Eternal life is to know God, mm -hmm. not what you believe on the state of the dead, in my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. 
But what, why is it important? Like, what's the big difference? What's the big deal? Any other ideas on that? I think it opens an opportunity for more deception. And that's, I think that's, you know, it, it might be important to mention it because of that, you know? It mm -hmm. just, you know, grandma's telling you, oh, go <coughs> do this. Because, you know, grandma's passed away how many years ago and she's telling you to do things and they're not right, you know? And that's an issue, mm -hmm. you know, or, mm -hmm. or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? That's a great point about it, too. Because, you know, Satan can actually use your beliefs against you. Yes. 100%. As he did, well, the author brings it up, like he gives the example of Saul in the Old Testament. God wasn't talking to him anymore, and Saul went to a, you know, a witch. witch vendor, yeah. call up the dead prophet Samuel, you know? What if the dead prophet Paul was resurrected? You know? And you believed in the immortality of the soul. So the dead prophet Paul came to you and was talking to you. Or by all means, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you're on the fence about this and the dead prophet Ellen White comes up and tells you what to do. Or a demon or Satan impersonating a dead prophet, yeah. right? Right, right. Exactly. That's an important tool that Satan uses. 100%. And he used it right there with the witch in Endor, the example that the author gave here, because, because, check this out, bottom of page 89, these are kind of the points, for those of you even listening on the recording later on, you can find this in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 19. That's the whole story of the witch of Endor. We won't read the whole thing, but check out some of the things that the author brought up that the, the dead prophet Samuel said. Um... The second one down here, the last one, uh, the last paragraph. Note in verse 16, the Spirit said, The Lord is departed from you and has become your enemy. The Lord did not leave Saul. Saul turned away from the Lord and could have come back if he had only repented. But because of these discouraging words of this demonic spirit impersonating Samuel, Saul was driven to despair and finally suicide. I think that's a really important point because if a spirit is impersonating, if there's if a someone you know is being impersonated by a spirit who's come back from the dead and they're talking about God, will they say something that is true? The truth about God, in harmony with God, will draw you into a deeper knowledge of who God is. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You are of your father the devil. He's the father of lies. And you do the works of him. Mm -hmm. There is no truth in him. Like this is why it's so important. So if there's a person who is doing the work of Satan, who's the father of lies, or a spirit impersonating through a dead someone you know, they will be doing the work of lies. There are no truth in them. Like, I think that's why it's super important. Yeah, you would think that the, the person, if you do believe in that, don't you think the person that, that, that died and is talking to you 
would encourage you to, to follow God's path. Like, man, this is wonderful being here up in heaven, you know, and, and this this could be your, you know, your life. When you pass away, this is going to be your reward for following God. Instead, you know, it's always like, oh yeah, you know, God's lying to you, and you know, just just like Saul. I think it's just, I think it's a really just important thing. I'm glad the author kind of brought that up too. And it's something I didn't, you know, it, I was, I, I was, I liked reading that when I read that point because it, you know, that subtle, just a subtle little thing, you know, subtle little thing. Um, well, yeah. Well, and too, you know, with all that deception, all of that deception that this, you know, witch told him and, and what Samuel even said was deceiving because the very idea that Samuel told him that the Lord's departed from you knew what to say for Saul to end his own life. Mm, because they, it was bang, bang, bang. And, you know, he has nothing to live for. Because he knows he served God all his life and then disobeyed him greatly. Yeah. He said the words that turned him on himself. Would drive him to the final yeah. to end it. Yeah. Because if you think of the great controversy concept, as long as the person, and, and we, we've talked about this here in our discussions many, many, many times, you've got Jesus and you've got two thieves hanging on the cross and all three of them are dying. The point of death, one thief says, I'll trust you. And one thief said, I hate you. I don't trust you, essentially, right? And Jesus said to one, you'll be with me in paradise. And the other one, he didn't even address. He didn't acknowledge. He didn't say anything, according to the biblical narrative, right? So that you make a great point. As long as Satan knows, as long as Saul's alive, then he has the opportunity to repent. Yeah. So the faster that Satan can get Saul to die... Then he doesn't and have with lies, exactly. And with lies, and that's yep. that's the scary part. Yep. You know, and yeah. Yep. Pretty wild, huh? Yeah. It's also like it's a little, a little bit of like common sense, like like if if you know about God and about the love of God, it's common sense that you know. <laughs> we're talking about the lies they, they yeah I mean lies, yeah, to that point God wants everybody to be on the same page but there are conflicting stories there's always going to be chaos so you know if we're talking about the state of the dead and people actually believe that people actually their spirit roams around the house or whatnot then they're making themselves susceptible for, you know, Satan to then uh, rule their lives. Right. Yeah. It's a fear issue, right? Right. So if everybody knows, oh yeah, that yeah, once once a person passes away, they're sleeping now. 
and then encounter something. It's like, no, you're not, you're not, you're not my fan. You, you know, stay away. You know, I don't want anything to do with you. Or you know, in, in the name of Christ, I, you know, command you to leave my house because that person knows that it's not that person as much as they have heard. Yeah, that's not my mom, or that's not my dad, or my, you know. Right. Yeah. We're having cocoa issues. Uh-huh. Um, Job 7, 9 through 10. This is a really cool verse. It's on page 90 there. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. Vanishes away. Not there no more. Um, in closing our discussion today and in closing this chapter, let's check out, Lola, do you mind reading on 91, uh, page Re- uh, Revelation 16, 14? And this is why, um, and maybe the paragraph before it too. It just really kind of ties into what we're talking about. The following text makes it clear that the spiritual warfare between God and Satan becomes more intense as we get closer to the battle of Armageddon and the coming of Jesus. So we need to be clear on this issue. Uh, Revelation 16, 14 says, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. There will be spirits of demons that go to the whole world. Some of the signs that these demonic oh do you want me to put down that's fine yeah okay some of the signs that these demonic spirits perform will be the impersonation of dead loved ones as well as prophets such as peter and paul who will seem to have miraculously returned from heaven to communicate with us these will be lying spirits and the deception will be overwhelming but if we know the dead are asleep in the grave awaiting the resurrection resurrection then we can't be deceived by a demon impersonating someone who has supposedly returned from heaven to tell us lies about God and the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Just really give that just really give that some thought, you know? Here we've spent countless hours of our lives studying the Bible and if you know, a specific, you know, author of the Bible, one of the authors, you really connect with their story. And you, you know, and they come back impersonating, you know, being impersonated. And that person says to you, you know, God loves you so much. And he's been seeing you live your whole life this way, serving him. And, and they have, He's given me this, this this mission to come here and to encourage you to do something. Just think that through. You know? And maybe you're, you know, as we all have at different times, God, just please show me a sign. Talk to me. I can't hear you right now. I want to know what your direction is for me. And you're actively asking those things. Yeah? And then something like that happens. 
Wouldn't that mess with you? That's exactly what Saul did with the witch of Endor. He was seeking a sign. The Bible said that the prophets weren't speaking to him. God wasn't speaking to him. The Urim, which was a vest that the priest wore, wasn't, wasn't doing its thing. Saul was seeking for answers. What is sad is at any point he could have, you know, yeah. he could have turned it around. He yeah. could have, yeah. you know, surrendered. He yeah. would have lived. His sons possibly would have lived. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't know because I know at that time they killed off the, yeah, right. the people. So yeah. I don't know, you know, but. Cool. Well, that concludes that chapter. Um, he kind of wraps it up here at the very last paragraph. I think this is important to just kind of throw in here. We This lesson, we really studied the sleep of death and, and that whole idea and why it's important to understand. But the Bible also speaks of a second death. When Jesus or God describe death, they're referring to sleep. When Jesus or God use the word death, they're also referring to the second death. Does that make any sense? I think I screwed that up. To God, sleep is what we call death. To God, death is what he calls the second death, which is there is no resurrection from. That is the wages of sin death. And that's a really important thing also to remember. Has anybody since the beginning of time, creation, has anyone died the wages of sin death? No. No. Not a single person. Not yet. Which means what? They're all sleeping. Including all the ones in Noah's day when he wiped out the flood. All of them. They're all sleeping. That's a, that'll blow, that's a blow your mind concept, isn't it? So the next two lessons we're going to cover the second coming of Christ and the millennium. And then we'll get into this concept of like second death after that. So we're getting to some heavy, some really heavy topics here now in this study. But I think it'll be good. So next week will be a corporate gathering at Ravino. And so then the second week of July, we'll get into the second coming of Jesus, lesson eight. We'll get started in that. And that should be a really good lesson. Closer prayer? Yep. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for the reality that you are kind and that you are good and that you're the kind of God that you are a God of peace, not of confusion. And I really like the concepts that death is asleep because it's peaceful. The person sleeping, you know, all of these other ideas and lies floating around out there just create a whole lot of confusion, um, which, we are, which we understand it not to be from you. Lord Jesus, help us to be able to um, share this message with those who are searching. Give us the words that we need in that moment to just plant seeds of truth that um, we can be ambassadors and disciples to win, win people to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.